Futures trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Opinions and statements of guests not affiliated with Everag are their own and do not reflect the views of Everag. The accuracy of their statements cannot be guaranteed by Everag. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week, we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Thursday, June 29th. July 23 corn is down eight and three quarter cents, trading 581 and a quarter, with December 23 corn down five cents, trading 531 and three quarters. Today, we've got July 23 soybeans up 14 and a quarter cents, trading 1465 and a quarter, with new crop November 23 soybeans up two and three quarter cents, trading 1267 and three quarters. Turning to our guest, this week it's our privilege to have Michael Langmeyer, Associate Director with the Center for Commercial Agriculture and a professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. Glad to be here. Well, I wanted to get started in our conversation today with a question around cost of production. It's been a hot topic lately, especially as producers across the country are facing record high costs of production to put in their crop this year. That's an area that you've spent a lot of time doing some research around. How have input costs shaped up for this year's crop? And how do they compare to previous years? Yes, very good question. Uh, if you look at, first of all, let's start looking at uh, 22 versus 21, because uh, from 21 to 22 was the, the large increase in input costs that is really still with us uh, to, to, to a great extent. Uh, if you look at corn production, for example, uh, the cost of production increased 25% from 21 to 22. So a very large increase in cost of production in 22. If you look at soybean production, uh, the increase was 15%. Uh, the, the, the larger increase for corn was really due to uh, the use of nitrogen. Uh, nitrogen prices were up substantially from 21 to 22. Uh, and, so, and so that's why the, the corn increase was larger than the soybean increase. Uh, if you're turning to 23, when you compare 22 to 23, uh, the, the average uh, break-even price is, is up about 3 to 5%. Uh, you know, depending on the on the crop you look at, I, I primarily focus on corn and soybeans, and so that's primarily what I'm discussing when I talk about break-even prices. And uh, 23 is kind of interesting in that fertilizer prices are down uh, across the board, pretty much nitrogen, phosphorus, and pota- and potash in 23. But other costs such as chemicals, repairs, um, a fuel uh, to to a great extent, and 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 other costs are are higher. Uh, in particular, interest is, is much higher in 23 than it was in 22. And so when you put that all together, uh, 23 still has a higher cost of production uh, than 22. And, 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 and like you said, we're looking at some record cost of production uh, for both corn and soybeans. So how does that compare to, to other years where you've seen really big increases in the past, Michael? One that comes to my mind is like 2008, where we had really high costs of production, especially when you compare it to, you know, its prior years. Um, Coming off the drought in 2012, we did see some increases. I'm just curious how those stack up. 
Yeah, the, the cost of production in, in uh, 2022 and 2023 is, is quite a bit higher uh, than what they were in 2013. That was the previous peak year. And, and in 2013, if you look at 2013 going into 2014, for example, if we want to look ahead a little bit at, at, at 2024, I think that's where you're heading with the question. Uh, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, when you look at 2013, uh, in, in 2014, you saw some rather large declines in fertilizer prices, but fertilizer prices were not as high in 2013, not even were close to as high as what they are right now. But we did see some declines in fertilizer prices uh, going from 2013 to 2014, and that was a big drop in price going from 2013 to 2014. Uh, also, uh, as we moved into 2014, we saw a rather large uh, decline in cash rents. Uh, and so we saw that uh, cash rents going down. And so that's the two costs uh, to really look at as we move into 2024. Uh, what, are, what are fertilizer costs going to do and what are cash rents uh, are going to do? Okay, so let's let's talk about those those big expenses. Yeah, uh, fertilizer costs. I think you'll still you'll see some uh, reductions in fertilizer costs because the two big, particularly nitrogen, uh, the two big uh, uh, inputs that you look at are corn prices and fuel prices. And so, if fuel prices uh, stay where they're at uh, and corn prices decline. Uh, which we look at the futures, it looks like they're going to be quite a bit lower uh, than what they were when the 23 crop crops were planted. Uh, you'll see some, at least some decline in fertilizer prices. It's very difficult to get a handle on how much decline, but I think we'll have at least some help from fertilizer prices. Uh, cash rent, uh, I think the, 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 uh, probably the, the best we can hope for there is stable cash rents. Um, you still had, you had some very good returns in 21 and 22. Uh, you still have strong liquidity in 23. When you have a situation like that, uh, it, it's difficult to foresee uh, a large drop in cash rent in 24. Now, if if, uh, if corn prices would stay low uh, for for you know the fall of 23 into 24 into 25, then you would see perhaps some reductions in cash rent moving beyond 24. Uh, but but we look like it looks like we're going to be in a, in a fairly tough situation again next year when it looks at cost of production uh, compared to the the futures prices that we're looking at uh, not only for this fall but for the fall of twenty four. Do you see much year over year decrease in cash rents in particular? I know that's an area that a lot of producers struggle to work down once it's gone higher. Have you seen much of that on a macro scale? No, not yet. And uh, I think the, I think the, the negotiations this fall, uh, the way it typically works, at least in the Corn Belt, but also I, I spent quite a bit of my career in the in the in the Great Plains. It's similar there. Uh, the negotiations start in the fall uh, for the for the next year, and 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 there'll be some pretty pretty strong negotiations to to even to keep uh, cash rents level. And so and so that's why I say uh, you know I, I'm I'm expecting cash rents for 24 to be uh, approximately the same. I know that's kind of a, uh, a weasel way of, of projecting, but I, that's what I'm, I'm projecting is is about the same. Um, and and uh, and and then as you move into uh, past 24, then I think you you could start if the prices remain low, you'll start to see some declines in cash rent. It goes back to exactly what you were talking about. Uh, it's it's very difficult, at least that first year when prices drop, it's very difficult to negotiate a downward adjustment in cash rents because they're coming off a couple of years of, of very strong net returns for operators, pretty strong increases in cash rent, and to go the other direction uh, in, in one year is very difficult. And so typically what happens is you is you see some more flatline 
flatlining for a year. And then if prices remain relatively low, then you start seeing some declines. And, and, and I go back to the 14 to 19 period, really until you got into that 15, 16 period, uh, you really didn't see uh, large declines in cash rent. And so uh, if we see a similar pattern in prices this time around, that's what I would expect is, is fairly flat in 24 and then possibly some declines uh, in 25. I want to talk a little bit about this cash rent piece um, because it is such a big expense for most producers. Uh, their single largest expense for the most part. There's been a lot of talk about flex rents and things like that. Have you seen an uptake in landowners that are willing to negotiate flex rents or producers who are proposing them? There's definitely more interest in flex rent. We've, we've gotten a lot more questions and and, and the, the few surveys I have seen uh, show an increase in flex rents. And, and it's, it's obvious why there'd be interest right now, because the flex, flex rent is one of those options you could look at where you could, you could set a base rent, and usually the base rent would be below the market rent, uh, and then you could add a bonus feature to that. And so if corn prices do uh, do increase uh, in, in 24, uh, the, the producer or the landowner would actually get a bump in cash rent. And, and, so, and so it's easier to negotiate uh, a rent like that in some cases than just a flat uh, market cash rent. The problem with the flex rents is they're hard, they're more difficult to understand. Uh, and quite frankly, unless the landowner and the operator are very transparent and and uh, and clearly lay out all the features of that flex rent, it's not a good idea to go in that direction. Uh, because it, the worst thing that can happen with a flex rent is one of the parties did not understand uh, you know, how the bonus worked and you lose the ground because of the flex rent. So they're not for everybody. Um, and then here I'm talking primarily for landowners. They're not for they're not for every relationship with landowners. But but given what's going on with the markets right now, and and uh, the fact that we have tight stocks to use uh, for both corn and soybeans, prices could go the other direction. And so if you want to keep the the rent relatively flat as the you know, in terms of base rent, you could write in a bonus there that if prices do increase. Uh, you'll get the landowner will get part of that bump uh, a bump. Uh, in price in, in the form of a, a bonus cash rent. So they do have some attractive features. I just didn't have that caveat that they're not for everybody because they're difficult. They're more difficult to understand. Absolutely. No. And that's a really good point to bring forward is you want to make sure that it's it, you know it's very clear to all parties exactly how these flex rents work, but something to consider because you've mentioned it a few times, grain markets have been incredibly volatile. And frankly, I don't see that necessarily changing anytime soon. There are a lot of question marks right now out there around yield. How much damage was done early on with the drought? We still are in a really critical time frame for this corn crop as we march towards pollination and we've got to see timely rains. It's it's essential, really. What are you keeping an eye on as you monitor grain and maybe broader even just ag markets in general? What what really key factors are you honing in on? Well, obviously the weather is going to have a huge impact, and that's difficult. That's that's nearly impossible to to predict uh, what's going to happen there. I mean, we have a lot of forecasts out there, but the the degree of accuracy of those is is, is by no means close to one hundred percent. And so you're just going to see a lot of volatility. And what we typically tell producers is. Look for opportunities to perhaps market uh, you know, at least a portion of your crop. I know 
We have we don't have a good idea of what the yields are going to be, but you're going to produce at least something. And so when you see weather markets like this and you see prices increase like they did uh, a week or two ago, see if those are, are, are an opportunity to market some at least a portion of your crop. Take advantage of this this volatility uh, and, and 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 try to set up uh, set up some uh, forward contracts or something similar to that uh, to try to market a portion of portion of your crop. No, that's great advice. It's similar to what we're telling producers right now. Ultimately, if you can sell grain and uh, it nets you a positive return, that's never a bad decision to to make because it. We often say it's hard to go broke when you're making money. <laughs> yeah, that's what my father used to say, and he and, he's, and he's, he was right. Yeah, that's right. So with all these factors in mind, and you've hinted at it a little bit because we did talk about 2024, but how is producer profitability shaping up for the coming year? Have you seen producers making some changes on a wide scale basis? Just in general, talk a little bit about 2024 and how profitability could be shaping up. I know there's a lot of variables out there, and you've hinted at it a little bit, but let's dive into 24 a little bit more. There's two things that we're going to keep our keep our eye on very closely. Uh, we've seen some pretty strong demand for used and new machinery in the last two and a half to three years, and you know, COVID was part of that. Uh, you know, particularly the used machinery market uh, was a big part of that. But but uh, we've seen some pretty strong demand there. I think if the if the net if the margins look as as bad as what they do right now, uh, with the futures prices you were talking about earlier and a high cost of production, we're looking at some weakening demand uh, in terms of buying machinery. There's no ifs ands or buts about that. Uh, the other thing to keep our eye on very closely is cash rents and land land markets. Uh, land values in particular have increased dramatically in the last two three years. Uh, if, if margins are are really going to be as tight as what they think they're going to be, and, and they look tight uh, compared to, to uh, uh, 21 and 22, uh, very tight uh, compared to those two years in 23, uh, and 24 doesn't look any better at, at this point. Uh, you're going to see you're going to see at least some leveling off of the of land values, uh, and, and so those are the two things that I'm looking at very closely: is the impact on on net projected net margins on the asset markets. Uh, particularly machinery, uh, machinery price, uh, machinery demand, but also uh, land values. That makes sense. That's really helpful. And I'm sure that as we continue to monitor those markets, they could be viewed as kind of a real direct indication of what's happening with farm profitability. We're going to switch gears just a little bit, not totally, but you've done a lot of research on farm operations and efficiencies within those operations. Obviously, that does have a direct impact on cost of production. But how have some of the recent innovations and the way that we that we grow crops changed? And is there anything that's really exciting for you on the horizon that could really kind of take us to the next level if you if you think about it that way? Yeah, well, some of this is a continuation of, of, of what we've been looking at for, for the last several decades. I mean, agriculture is a very capital intensive business. And, and so obviously you always take a strong look at not only the land markets, but also also machinery uh, and, and and what can, that can do to efficiency and 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 I think I, I think that some of the new technologies that that's that's coming down the pike is that some of it a lot of it's already here uh, is, is is something that producers have to take a very strong look at uh, particularly producers that are bringing family members back and thinking about expanding uh, is this new technology going to allow you to farm more acres with the same amount of people that you have 
Uh, that's always the question we, we ask in production agriculture. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's definitely something uh, that producers have to look at. But before, probably before you do that, uh, it's very important to kind of benchmark where you're at today. And, and there's, there's good va- data available uh, on performance benchmarks like the profit margin uh, from the University of Minnesota FinBin, FinBin database. And, and so what is your profit margin in the last five years compared to the FinBin database? And if your profit margin is not relatively high, uh, probably the last thing you want to look at is buying even more machinery. You need to figure out why. You know, what are some of the reasons why your profit margin is not as strong? And, and certainly just investing in technology is not necessarily going to be a, a panacea. And so that's probably important uh, before we, we invest in, in new technologies to figure out uh, where you're at, at at today. But one of the challenges, of, of course, we're going to face uh, in production agriculture, and there's nothing really new, but it's a continuation of probably we've seen for quite some time, is, uh, is, 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 is labor. Uh, you know, we, we really need some, some, some uh, well-trained individuals uh, on these farms, uh, and, and it's tough to find these people in rural areas, uh, and, and I think it's becoming even more difficult. And, and part of the problem here is, is it's pretty obvious. Uh, usually when you're looking for one person, they have they also have a spouse that's going to be uh, go, come, come into that rural area with them. And is there a job opportunity for that other person? And, and quite often the answer is no. Uh, or the answer is um, one of the people, one of the individuals does not want to live in the rural area. I mean, I, I love li- living in the rural area because I'm from the rural area, but a lot of people are not. Uh, and so that's a continual challenge uh, that, that we face in production agriculture is how do we find the right people? Uh, that's why we've been so interested in, in investing in technology is that's allowed us to not have to hire as many people, but we still have to replace the people that we have. Uh, and, and so and so that that's going to be uh, that's going to continue to be difficult. Now, those are all really, really great points. And all of us out here that care about rural communities have seen that we need to have a focus on making our small communities desirable to live in, to bring in those skilled laborers, to bring in the next generation and ultimately to keep our uh, ag economies thriving. So that's a really good point. And it's more difficult in some parts of the country than others. I mean, uh, in Indiana, we have a fairly large population, so there is more opportunities uh, in a state like Indiana and even and even to some extent uh, Illinois and parts of Iowa. But but I spent a, a lot of my career at, in Kansas and grew up in Nebraska. Uh, it's really challenging uh, out in those areas, particularly as you move west. Uh, it's really difficult to make those communities attractive, but we have to do everything we can uh, to to try to make those communities attractive to to young people uh, so that they can, uh, they're interested in working with businesses because uh, we talked about technology. uh, The the skills that we need on the farms is continually changing. And one of those skills is going to be this IT skill, uh, this computer skill. And, and, uh, and if we, if we, if we don't have someone in the family that can do that, is there someone close that we can work with? And so it's not only looking at personnel for your farm, it's looking at personnel that'll help us, uh, help us with our operation. And, and so it's, it's going to be a challenge. It, it, we can overcome this challenge, but it is going to be a challenge. Absolutely. It is. It's going to be a challenge. But if there's a crowd of folks who are up for the challenge, I think it's those in production agriculture. They've uh, always risen to the occasion. And I don't imagine that they're going to back down from from this either. And 
it's exciting. I think we're involved in a really exciting uh, sector. I think agriculture is fun to be a part of, and especially in a time right now where efficiencies are growing, where technology is becoming an even more critical uh, piece of the equation. And uh, I think the, that it's, it's a fun place to be for sure. Yeah, I always tell my students that this is a very exciting time to to uh, to start start their careers, whether that be in production, agriculture, and in agribusiness, because the population is still growing, uh, and also the per capita income around the world is growing, and so uh, there's still increasing demand for the for the products that we produce uh, in production, agriculture, and that's going to be the case for at least twenty, thirty more years, and then you you put on top of that the fact that we need to try to produce uh, uh, sustainably. Uh, this is this is an exciting time to be in production agriculture and, and to figure out these problems uh, so that that, that we, the, the large uh, reductions in poverty uh, and, and world hunger that we've seen recently, uh, we can continue to, to see that uh, see that be the case. Absolutely. It's certainly noble work that uh, we all do out here. Michael, it has been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation a lot. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us. Michael, if listeners would like to learn more about the work that you and your team are doing, how can they best do so? I, I would like them to check out the Center for Commercial Agriculture. Uh, that's the that's the center that, I, that I'm part of. Uh, and on that center, we have very, we have podcasts on a lot of different topics, but we also have a lot of uh, written publications uh, related to management, finance, uh, cost of production, some of the topics that we've been talking about today. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us today. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, feel free to hit the like button, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and share us with a friend or two. Thanks to Corey Romero, our producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's production. Mm-hmm.